Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Let's stand as we read God's Word. Mark chapter 9. Verse 30. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John Mark writes, They went out from there, uh, that's Jesus and the disciples, and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John, one of the disciples, said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. You may be seated. Have you ever heard of the GOAT? It's an acronym, the greatest of all time. Uh, it, it came into kind of popular culture in the 60s with, uh, with a guy by the name of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali said he was the greatest. He also said a bunch of other things, but that's one of the things that he said. It came back into American language in the 90s by the great theological rapper LL Cool J. LL Cool J called himself the GOAT, and he actually had an album called The GOAT. Now, we know it in our day because sports writers uh, often argue over who is the greatest of all time. And so sports, the sports world will say names like LeBron James, uh, Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, and they'll call them the goats. And what this tells us is that we live in a world where people are constantly chasing after greatness. Now, now what I think if we really boil down certain parts of this, what, what the world calls great is not really that great. 
And greatness is, is really it's temporary because if, if greatness is really dependent upon your athletic prowess or your singing abilities, well, that's temporary. It doesn't last because eventually someone's going to come in. They're going to be better than you. They're going to replace you. They're going to have better records and better scores and better abilities than you. But even deeper, sometimes those who we think are great, people that we idolize and, and, and we think, man, it would be great to be them. They're not that great of people. You know, it's been said you should never meet your heroes because you might end up disappointed. You know, some of these people that we put up as great, well, they have no character or they're frauds. But yet we as humans, we, we chase after greatness. We're, we're constantly looking for greatness and we go to this and we go to that. But the reason why we're chasing after greatness is because we're chasing after the real goat, the greatest of all time, Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to hear from him. And as we look in Mark's gospel, we're at this point where we're now on the other side of halfway and we're seeing that Mark is zeroing in on, on why Jesus came and, and what does it look like to follow him? And, and in this section, we're, we're getting a lot more teaching from Jesus rather than going from one story to the other story. We're seeing now that Jesus is slowing down a little bit, taking time to intentionally invest in his disciples to prepare them for what was coming. And, and one section that we're looking at this morning is Jesus is going to focus on greatness and how to be great in the kingdom of God. And so here's the simplicity of his teaching. What we're gonna learn is we're gonna see the meaning and the measure of greatness. So let's unpack that. The number one, the meaning of greatness. What is true greatness? Now, uh, before Jesus teaches about greatness, he's going to walk with his disciples. They were up uh, in uh, the Golan Heights, uh, Caesarea Philippi. They were up on Mount Hermon. They went from there uh, and they passed through Galilee. They're now heading south and they're going to, what we're going to find is they're going to make a pit stop in Capernaum. Someone said there was a Bucky's that was built there. And so they're, they're going to, they're going to go and get some, uh, some, some nuggets. There. But anyway, I'm just kidding. Um, but they're traveling down the King's Highway. They're making their way uh, through Galilee uh, to Jerusalem. Now, the Bible says in verse 30 that Jesus didn't want anyone to know. He didn't want the fanfare. So he made sure that they were kind of moving secretly, only spending time with his disciples. And, and while they were walking on the way, Jesus was teaching his disciples. Jesus intentionally used moments. He redeemed moments that maybe were mundane and redeemed them for an opportunity to teach him, them, his disciples, uh, just about life and what was coming. And so it's in that section as they're walking back to Galilee through Galilee, that Jesus for the second time predicts that he is going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise from the dead. And so what we know in this section of Mark's gospel, that when he goes to Peter's house in a moment, uh, that that's his last time there. I mean, we are headed towards Jerusalem now. It's his last time until after the resurrection. And so Jesus has told them, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to rise from the dead. And yet it says here that they did not understand what he said and they were afraid to ask. Have you ever uh, been afraid to ask someone a question because you were afraid what the answer might be? Well, that's what's going on here. Now, they didn't understand, but it wasn't because Jesus was doing something that really wasn't in line with scriptures. Matter of fact, Jesus, what he was saying to the disciples was in line with the prophets. It's what the prophets Isaiah said, that there would be a Messiah who would be a suffering servant. 
But, but just because Jesus was in line with the prophets didn't mean that he wasn't out of step with popular opinion because popular opinion in that day was that Messiah would not be suffering and dying and resurrecting, that Messiah would be ruling and reigning. And there would be some, this, some renaissance of Israel. And so when the disciples are hearing that Jesus, whom they have left everything to follow, says, I am going to Jerusalem not to take over, not to kick Rome out, not to rule and reign. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. That's not the vision that they had when they left it all to follow him. So Jesus is, so they're, they're in this way. So they finally get to Peter's house. Verse 33, verse 34, Jesus comes and he says, hey guys, you guys were having a pretty heated debate on the way back down. What were you guys talking about? Now, Jesus knew what they were talking about. He asked them to draw it out of them and, and the Bible says that they were silent. It's like if you ever ask your kids, did you steal that? Did you take that? Did you do that? They, all of a sudden, they can talk any other time, but they don't talk then <laughs> because they were caught. Why were they caught? Because Jesus, after he had told them that he's gonna suffer, die, and raise, resurrect from the dead, the big discussion with them is which one of those knuckleheads was the greatest of all. Now think about that, how insensitive, how, how self-centered, how disturbing that was that they just heard Jesus talk about his death and resurrection, and all they, were, all they cared about is who's gonna sit where in the kingdom of God. And so they were having this discussion, and so Jesus, in verse 35, he sits down. And when Jesus sits down, he sits down in a position of a rabbi, and that day, the preacher sat. And so Jesus sat down, and, and as you read the text, Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples, but he, but he does something, he redirects them. He doesn't rebuke their desire for greatness. He redefines what greatness is because the, the disciples' vision of greatness was not Jesus' vision of greatness, but yet it still doesn't negate the fact that all of us are born with an innate desire for greatness. Did you know that God hardwired you with that desire? That there's a desire in all of us. He's put eternity in our hearts. He has given us a desire for significance, a, a desire to want to make a difference in the world around us. That's not a bad thing. That's not a sinful thing. When he gave the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, he was giving within us, feeding that desire to be great and to do great things. And we know that this desire is innate. I mean, just think about it. If you ask a kid, uh, even when you were a kid, think of all the dreams you had for your future. Think of all the things that you wanted to do, all the great things and, and how you wanted to make a difference. And you go out now and you go ask a little kid and you say, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? Well, they don't say, well, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a tax accountant <laughs> or I want to be a civil engineer. Now, not that those things are bad. We, we need people like this, especially this time of year. We need tax accountants. We need CPAs, but, but most little kids don't grow up thinking, man, my dream in life is to be a CPA for Jesus. No, most want to be a police officer. They want to be a firefighter. They want to be an astronaut. They want to be the president of the United States. They want to do something awesome. They don't want to do something that they think is mundane and ordinary. See, greatness is the drive and ambition to do great things and to be great, and it's not evil. That's, that's what makes us creative. That's what makes us uh, do great things. Where it goes bad is when we desire 
to be thought of as great by other people. That's where it goes bad. See, when you chase after fame, when you chase after notoriety, when you chase after being thought of by others as being great, you are exchanging receiving greatness from God into a longing to receive greatness for other people. And what happens is, is that Martin Luther said that sin curves in on itself, is that now it becomes about us and we want others to sing our praises and tell us how great we are. And the problem is, is that when you make greatness about others thinking you're great, you're never happy. You're never satisfied. And often it leads to so many problems in your life. The desire to be thought of by others as great has ruined many lives. James puts it this way in James 3.16. He says, envy and selfish ambition, where envy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Envy, selfish ambition are often the roots of conflict, of anger, of hatred, and evil. Now, what is envy? Envy is wanting another person's story. And so you see someone else living where they live, like you drive down to certain places here in town. We won't name because some of you may live there and we don't want you thinking we're talking about you. <laughs> Literally, I, sometimes I'll name places and some, I get a letter saying, well, are you talking about me? I'm not, I'm just using it in general. Anyway, so... But you drive down those places by the beach on the, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and you look, you look at this person's house and here's the crazy thing. They're million dollar homes. I'm not making fun of anybody that has wealth. Okay. I don't want emails about that. But you look at these million dollar homes and they live there like two weeks out of the year. Anyway. You, we'll have repentance in a moment. You come down and you envy. You say, oh, I wish I could have what they have. Or you see somebody else has a job and you, man, I wish I had that job. Or you see someone else on, on, on social media and they're getting all the notoriety and have all these, these famous friends and all this, that, and the other. And you envy. You wish you were them. Here's the thing about envy. It's a vicious cycle. Because there's always gonna be someone ahead of you. There's always gonna be someone better than you. What envy does, envy compares itself with other people who are ahead of you. So like you don't, you don't really compare, an envious person doesn't compare yourself with someone who makes half of what you make. You look at someone who makes twice as much as you make. And what happens is, is that once you get to that place, then you look at the next person, the next person, the next person, and you're constantly living in the shadow of somebody else and you're never content with what you have. That's why it leads to every vile practice. With selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is the sister of envy. There are two ugly sisters there. Selfish ambition is the desire to put yourself, your needs, and your wants ahead of everyone else. So selfish ambition is wanting credit when things go well and never wanting to blame when things go bad. Ambition, again, I want to reiterate, is in and of itself is not bad. Where it goes bad is where you make everything solely about you. Mark Sayer wrote a book about this, and here's what he said. He says, if your dream was realized and you did not get the credit for it, would you still be happy? You know, most of us, if we're honest, we say, no. If I dreamt it, if I did it, I want others to know that I did it. I want others to recognize, and I want others to praise me for what I've done. 
And I want people to recognize how smart I am and how strong I am and how beautiful I am, how resourceful that I am. We want to be recognized. We want others to give us greatness. But is that what Jesus is teaching here? No. What does he say? He says in verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He says, if you want to be great, here's how. Be last. Be least. Be a servant. If you would be first, then you must be last and servant of all. The word servant here is the word diakonos. We get a word deacon from it. Literally, the Greek intent is a table server, a waiter. Jesus says, if you want to be great, don't look for people to serve you. Look for people whom you can serve. See, it's an upside down kingdom. Selfish ambition is all about people noticing me and praising me and looking to me and serving me. But in the upside down kingdom, no, it's how can I serve others? How can I praise others? How can I lift others up? It's an upside down kingdom. Jesus is saying, if you want to be a great leader, then be a great servant. Because greatness is not defined by what you accomplish. It's defined by who you serve. So what's a servant? I mean, if you were to think of a servant, I would like, what'd you think about? So when I think about a servant, I think about Downton Abbey. Anybody ever seen Downton Abbey? I came this close to going to the castle. They didn't have tickets. I didn't want to, you know, anyway. When I think of a servant, I think of Mr. Carson and Miss Hughes. Anyone else? Like five of you? The 830 service, they were all over it, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we almost had revival when I brought up Mountain Downton Abbey, okay? <laughs> but you think of a servant. So what's a servant? Let me give you what a servant is. Number one, a servant exists to make others lives better than their own. A servant works hard to do tangible things that help others. A servant is faithful for years and is content. A servant does not care what others think about them, and they are free from the desire to be more than a servant. I mean, think about it. If you think about Mr. Carson, when he retired from being the head butler, he, he's, he didn't know what to do because his whole life was serving others. When Jesus is saying that if you want to be great, be a servant, that was so countercultural in Jesus' day. And it's so countercultural in our day. I mean, that's not what we think about. We, we don't necessarily ascribe. I mean, how many of you grow up? When I grow up, I want to be a servant. I mean, that's not what we think. It's not what they thought in Jesus' day. You ever heard of a guy named Plato? Plato, who was a Greek philosopher pre-Jesus, but it was still the mindset in Jesus' day. Here's what he wrote. He says, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone else? Jesus says happiness is found through serving others rather than serving yourself. But I want you to understand that our serving of others is not because if we don't, we'll go to hell. This is not servile, fear-based service. It is not service because we're servile. It's service because of the strength we have in Jesus. It's not because I don't serve you so that I don't go to hell. I serve you because I'm not going to hell. And in gratitude, I want to show my appreciation to my king who saved me by serving you. So that's what Jesus is doing. So what is, what is greatness? Greatness is serving 
others. So what's the measure of it? What's the test? How do you can tell? Keep going with me. Stay with me, okay? I know this is like convicting sermon. That's, I mean, I'm convicted. So then verse 36, Jesus wants to illustrate with his disciples. So there's a little kid, somewhere there's a kid running around. He takes the kid. Now in Jesus' day, there was no sentimentalism attached to children. There was no kindergarten where the kids ruled the house. Okay. There, there was no Disney in Jesus' day. And thank God there wasn't a Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Most kids died young. They were considered a liability. They were considered another mouth to feed. Uh, many of these kids were sold into slavery. They were abandoned or they were aborted. It wasn't, it really was the, the only nation in the whole world in this time that had any value on kids was, was the Jewish people. Jews valued kids because they were looking and longing for Messiah and their Judeo worldview was that all people are made in the image of God. And it really, however, wasn't until Christianity became the official religion of Rome, of the Roman Empire, that abortion would be illegal. And so it tells you that Christianity from its very beginning has always been for life, for justice, and against abortion. So Jesus takes the child and hugs the child. Now, that's a great moment. And he's saying, and in, 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 in taking this child, a child, again, was not, there's no sentimentality. And so a child in that day was a liability. He was the least of people. He was insignificant. And he could not do anything that would further your agenda. And so Jesus, in taking the child and hugging the child and embracing the child, is saying this, if you want to be great, then welcome and embrace the least, the insignificant, and those who cannot help you. That's the ethic of the New Testament. The New Testament constantly talks about loving the least of these. Now, there are typically three types of people that we are called, true religion is calling us to loving the orphan, the widow, and the poor. In our day, we still have that same mandate to love the orphan, the window, and the poor, but maybe more relevant is that we are to love the foster kid, the single mother, and the immigrant. See, greatness is when you serve people that the culture says doesn't matter. See, we don't assign value according to someone's utility or usefulness to us. We serve people who cannot repay us or do anything for us. Now, our culture, that's not what we think about. Our culture is all about networking. Our culture is all about reciprocity. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's all about quid pro quo. And, and it's because we want to climb the ladder. We want to keep going up. And so we make relationships. We, we do favors for people, hoping that they will repay us and do something in kind for us. And so our world, our culture is we use people. We don't love people. We see people as the means to get where we want to go, not the end. And Jesus says, that's not my way. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. There's a little, kind of a little play with all of this about in my name, in my name. It's kind of found throughout this teaching. Jesus bases his teaching in relation to him. So in other words, what he's saying here in this text is that we do not define, we do not define people in relation to ourselves. 
See, we, what we do is we tend to define people in relation to ourselves, and that is, what can this person do for me? How can this person help me? How can this person fulfill my agenda? And so we define people based on their utility over what they can do for us. Jesus says, do not define people in relationships to you, but he says, receive people, love people based on our relationship to him. See, don't love people on their relationship with you. Love people because of your relationship with Jesus. And if Jesus loves them, we're to love them too. See, we don't love people because they're, they're lovable. Most people are not lovable. I'm not very lovable. Most people are difficult. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, then find people who can't help you or do anything for you, and you minister to them. And in doing so, you'll be great. He says, love the least of these. And in loving them, you're loving me. And in loving me, you're loving the Father. And he also goes on to say that you cannot love me, you cannot receive me and reject others that are doing works in my name. It's awful quiet in here. And John, who was there listening to this, he, he said something about that. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. Now, there's some irony in the fact that John's going to teach us that because you now look at verse 38 and Jesus has now taught about greatness. He's taught about receiving the least of these and the leftovers and the insignificant, those who cannot repay you and you receive them in my name. And there all of a sudden you think, all right, now they're going to be saying, oh, wow, Jesus, we get it. We're sorry. We're dumb. Well, they are dumb and they reveal their stupidity in the next statement. John is going to say something. Now, John, normally you think it's Peter. Because Peter says a lot of crazy things. Well, here John says something really dumb. All right, so he's picked up on this in my name business. And so he says, well, teacher, we saw it the other day. We were, Jesus, we, this is, I'm so glad you taught this, Jesus. This is so helpful. The other day we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. And guess what we did, Jesus? We tried to stop them. You know why, Jesus? They weren't following us. Now think about that. Is he just dumb or plain stupid? <laughs> he picks up the in my name part, but he misses the point altogether. And so they see somebody doing something they couldn't do because why earlier, guess what they couldn't do? They couldn't cast out a demon earlier. They tried. They went bippity-boppity-boo and the demon just said, boo back, okay? <laughs> they couldn't do doodly squat. There they're out walking about and they see another guy that they didn't know who wasn't with them casting out a demon in Jesus' name and they got upset because they saw somebody doing something they couldn't do and they were upset because he wasn't one of them. He wasn't following them. He doesn't, they don't say, we stopped him because he wasn't following you. He says, we stopped him because he wasn't following us. See, rather than the disciples celebrate the defeat of darkness in the life of a person who was freed from a demon, they were actively trying to stop it from happening. Why? Because they were so narrow-minded 
and wanted a monopoly on the ministry power of Jesus. Why? So that they would look great. They wanted it out of selfish ambition and personal gain. And they stopped a brother from doing ministry. Tried to. Because he wasn't with them. So what does Jesus do here? He doesn't rebuke them. He redirects them. He says in verse 39, don't stop him. Why? Tells us. Because no one who's doing a work in my name is going to turn around and speak evil of me. It doesn't make sense. You're shutting him down because he's not following you, but it doesn't mean he's not following me. <laughs> Just because he's not following you doesn't mean he's not following me. And though he goes on, he says, he, he quotes the Roman philosopher Cicero, who said, for the one who is not against you, against us is for us. The one who's not against us is for us. That was a well-known saying in Jesus' day. In other words, Jesus looks at justice. You know, everybody knows that the one who's not against us is for us. And in doing so, Jesus is so, he's brilliant. He's God. He, yeah. <laughs> he redefines to us who the us is. You know, we live in a world of us versus them, don't we? We define us as people in our tribe, our people, our culture, even at times our spit, skin pigmentation. We define people uh, by the basis of what party they're in or what church they attend. And you know what Jesus is saying? I've got more disciples than just y'all. Now that's the southern version of that. <laughs> the northern version is I've got more disciples than you guys. I got more than you guys. You ain't all I got. And what Jesus does is he draws the circle wider. The disciples were making the circle tighter. Jesus draws the circle, the circle wider. He's combating their tribalism. Telling us who the us is, and he's also telling us who's against us. And the them is not other disciples of Jesus who aren't in our tribe, aren't in our party, don't go to our church. That's not the them. The them, those who are against us, are Satan and his demons, not other people doing a work in Jesus' name. J.C. Ryle, who commentates on this text, he says that Christians have persecuted Christians for no better reason than that which is given here by John. They have practically proclaimed to their brothers and sisters, you either follow us or you do not do the work of Christ at all. First Baptist, we are not in competition with other churches in our city. We are partners. We are not at war with flesh and blood. We are standing against the devil and his demons who want to steal, kill, and destroy our city. And in days like this, I thank God that he has more than our church. 
that there are other brothers and sisters in our community, in our area that love Jesus, preach the gospel and stand for truth. And we need to stand together with them. And so Jesus continues. He then says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now again, he gives another example. The cup of water seems normal to us. In Jesus' day in first century Israel, hospitality is huge. And so whenever a guest comes to your house, you always give them something to drink. You, it was, you always give them something to eat. It was, you, you serve others with refreshment. If you didn't, it would bring shame and honor in your house. And so when you had a guest that came, you would give them the best. And so if you had one cold Coke Zero in your fridge, when they came over, you didn't give them, you know, Pepsi. You gave them Coke Zero, all right? You gave them, you see what I'm getting at? Well, a cup of water was the smallest act of hospitality, and it was often the gift of the poor, because the poor didn't have wine. They didn't have milk, but they had water. It's the best they could do. Jesus says, if someone gives you what seems to be the smallest, most insignificant gift, they will not lose their reward. Because even the smallest act has the greatest significance when it's done in the greatest name. Do you understand that, see, Jesus is talking about serving, right? He says, if you want to be great, serve. Some of you are saying, well, if I serve, it's healthy. So you say, well, what am I going to get out of it, right? How many times do you, somebody asks you, well, you do something, and you think, what am I going to, how is this going to help me? And God wants you to understand, he understands your sinful heart, but he also wants you to understand how generous he is. That God rewards those who serve others. And God is, God is far more generous than we are. And the smallest acts of service are seen and known by God. Every little thing. You know, the things that we think are important are not as important to God. You know why? Because many of those things that we think are important were done for the wrong reasons. You know, some of you, you think about pastors and you think about great uh, teachers and you think, man, when they get to heaven, they're gonna get all these rewards and Jesus is gonna say, well done. But I'm, I, here's what I really believe. I, I don't necessarily think the, the people on the platform are gonna get the well dones all the time. You know who will get the well dones? The little old lady who nobody knows her name. She's been serving tirelessly in the kids' ministry. She's a prayer warrior. She's a faithful giver. She'll do anything for you, but nobody knows her name. That's who's gonna be great in the kingdom of God. And judgment day will expose the motive of, motives of our hearts. Listen, if our motives for serving others is out of pride and envy and selfish ambition, God knows you can't fool him. You can fool some of the people some of the time and all the people some of the time and I can't remember the rest of that statement, but you can't fool God. <laughs> right? Because you can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Stay with me. Don't leave yet. 
Jesus is teaching us that the test of our greatness is not what people say about us. The test of our greatness is not what people think about us. The test of our greatness is what our Heavenly Father knows about us. And you don't have to be brilliant, and you don't have to be well-known, and you don't have to be beautiful or successful to be great. If you wanna be great, just be a faithful, loving servant of God. Is anybody convicted yet? Well, how can I do that? Because I don't know, I'm pretty messed up. Anybody else messed up in the room? Yeah. Yeah, if you, you should tell your neighbor, you're messed up. You know, you're messed up. We're all messed up. How can I do that? Because I'm a sinner, and because I'm a sinner, I don't do anything with 100% pure motives. I'm a sinner. You say, well, I do. No, you don't. Nobody does. How can I do it? How can I get closer to 100% pure motives? I have to look to Jesus, because Jesus is the greatest of all time. And he proved that by dying for us. When Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, he's showing us servanthood. Think about this. He who was truly first became last of all so that we could be treated as if we are first of all. Wow. Wow. C.J. Mahaney says that Jesus alone came to give his life as a ransom for the sins of many. And this separates him from any other sacrificial service that anyone else anywhere could ever offer. Here we find what is completely, utterly, and categorically unique about the Savior and his example. Our service to others is always both an effect of his unique sacrifice and the evidence of it. His sacrifice alone makes it possible for us to achieve and experience true greatness in God's eyes. Would you rather be great in the eyes of God or the eyes of other people? Our service to others, whether it's in the nursery, Preschool, kids' ministry, student ministry, choir, orchestra, band, tech, greeters, or out in our community at Love Naples, or just genuine acts of kindness as you love others in your community. Every one of those should be a reflection of Jesus's ultimate service to you and the motivation for serving others should be out of gratitude for his service for you. Let's end with this. In September 2009, at the Basketball Hall of Fame, multiple inductees gave speeches. One who gave a speech for his induction into the Basketball Hall of Fame was his heirness, Michael Jordan. If you know about what took place at his acceptance speech, it's actually become viral and infamous. During his speech, he told his kids how sorry he was that they have to try to live up to his expectations and live up to being him. He then went on to gripe about having to pay for his family to be at that event. After that, he gave a speech in which he named person after person after person who helped him become great because each and every one of those were his enemies and obstacles to overcome. 
Towards the end of his speech, he says, you know, there is no I in team, but there is an I in win, and I won a lot of games. Greatness for Michael Jordan was elevating himself at the expense of others, treating them like rungs on a ladder of greatness. The only good thing that came out of his speech was this. <laughs> the crying Jordan meme. There's another guy who spoke by the name of David Robinson. David Robinson maybe wasn't as good of a basketball player, but his, he was known as the Admiral. He was inducted in the same ceremony, but he had a radically different tone. During his seven-minute speech, as opposed to Jordan's 23-minute speech, 23, 23, he thanked everyone who made an impact in his life. He thanked his family. He thanked his coaches. He thanked the Spurs organization. He thanked his teammates by name. And then he closed his speech with this. Thing that I'm, uh, I was thinking the other day about a story uh, from the Bible. It's from Luke, uh, the 17th chapter. And it was a story about 10 lepers that were healed by Jesus. And one of them came back. And one of them fell on his knees before him and said, thank you. And honored him and, and blessed him. And, and I just want to say thank you. God has followed me in my career and he has blessed me and he has strengthened me and he's encouraged me. And if anybody who knows me or anybody who has watched me, you have seen his hand in my life. And my prayer is that he will walk with you as he has walked with me all through my life. So. Two different players, two different perspectives of greatness. One was impressed with himself, the other impressed with Jesus. One thanked himself, the other thanked God. One may have been the greatest of all time in basketball, but the other one knew the true and ultimate goat, Jesus Christ. If you're here and you have experienced his forgiveness, you've experienced his grace, and you know what you are? You know what I am? We're unworthy servants. And if you want to be great, get low and live a life of gratitude. So what's the application? Here's the application. If you are a Christian and you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're on mission. And I'm praying that some of you will feel that call to want to go on a short-term mission and say, Lord, send me. We had a young lady at FBA who God's been dealing in her heart. She came to one of our teachers and her Bible teacher and said, you know, after all that God's doing in the church and in chapel and all this stuff, I really feel like God's calling me to be a missionary. Praise God. Maybe he's calling you. Or maybe the simple call is maybe you're going to this church and you've become a consumer. You just hear out what you can get. You just want people to serve you. But if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, it's not what others do for you. It's what you do for others in the name of Jesus. And so we want to encourage you, get that connection card. And there's so many areas you can sign up and serve in. Kids ministry, student ministry, tech ministry, all kinds of ministries, greeter ministries. And you say, I can't, I'm physically unable. You can be a part of our prayer ministry. You can always pray. I want to encourage you to sign up for Love Naples. Don't be above it. Don't think you're better than it. Serve.
Whoever would be great, let him be the servant of all. And if you're here and you never trusted Jesus, he is here to serve you. He gave his life for you and you can be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I, I ask God that this doesn't just become a sermon that we say, wow, I wish others would do that God, this would be a sermon we'd all say, oh Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, God. Forgive us where we have lived for ourselves and serving ourselves through selfish ambition and envy. And God, help us to be great in the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that you would mobilize an army here at First Baptist that would reach Naples to the nations and that we would live a life of gratitude thanking you for your grace like that leper who returned may we now return and say thank you God in Jesus name amen let's stand and sing gratitude thank you for joining us as we go through God's word together I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out so as we say here at first you have come to church go out and be the church have a great week of worship we can't wait to see you soon